Welcome to the Indisposable Podcast, produced by Upstream. I'm your host, Brooking Gatewood. Thanks for joining for another episode celebrating solutions to plastic pollution. This episode is sponsored by Tandem Coffee Roasters. Working on it since 2012, Tandem Coffee Roasters in Portland, Maine, believes in good coffee and pursuing a future that is free of single-use cups. Reduce, reuse, and spread joy. TandemCoffee.com Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the Indisposable Podcast. Today, I am here with a voice you've been hearing a lot of lately, Matt Prindeville, Upstream's Executive Director. But today, he's going to be on the guest side of the conversation, and we're going to be talking about the story of Upstream. So a lot of you here have heard us talk about Upstream in every episode introduction as an organization that hosts this podcast and is sparking solutions to plastic pollution. But that's not actually the whole story and where the organization started. So we thought it might be fun today to go in a little bit of a deeper dive into Upstream story and future and talk a little bit about our vision for the indisposable future. So Matt, thanks so much for joining us today. Brooking, it's great to be with you as always. It's always fun to get to talk with each other, even though we're both usually interviewing other people. So um, let's just get started with the story of the name Upstream. I mean, some listeners might not even have context for why that's the organization's name and the history. You know, this, you guys have been around for 15 plus years now. So let's let's do a little backstory. Yeah, yeah. So we were founded um, by leaders in the zero waste movement in the US and Canada that had helped to create what we now call the zero waste movement. And so back in the 90s, you know, the big question at, at state uh, capitals and provincial capitals was how much recycling should we have? Should it be 30% or 40% or 50%? And they were part of this band of radicals back then that said, no, we should be striving for zero waste. And of course, everybody thought it was a crazy idea back then. But if you flash forward you know, 30 years uh, to today, zero waste is a global meme. You've got zero waste lifestyle influencers and you've got some of the biggest corporations in the world striving to be zero waste companies and the biggest cities in the world striving to be zero waste cities. So um, so they were definitely onto something, but they felt that through their work together in the 90s, that the movement they helped to create had become overly focused on the end of the pipe. And they said, you know, we're never going to be able to recycle or compost our way to a sustainable future. We really have to work upstream to redesign all the systems that are generating all the waste in the first place. So um, so that's really where the the idea came from. And that's that's we've been, you know, we were founded in, in 2003 and and we've been working on this stuff ever since. So tell us a little bit about the work you guys were doing at the beginning and how that has evolved over time. Yeah, so the big idea back in 2003 was how do we bring this concept called extended producer responsibility from Europe to the United States? And you know, to just really simplify this kind of wonky sounding term, extended producer responsibility just basically means that if you make something, you need to take responsibility for the environmental impacts of your product or its package. And the way that that is played out in practice is typically it's government policy that requires companies to set up the collection and recycling uh, programs and systems for their products and their packaging. And of course, the vision was also not to just be about recycling, but how do we actually reduce the amount of, of packaging and, and materials and all of this unnecessary waste and unnecessary consumption that's involved with commerce today. And so it was a really big idea back then. And the organization kind of set out to create the, the intellectual rationale for why we needed it. And we released a report back in 2003 uh, called Unintended Consequences. And the whole purpose of that report was to show that essentially city and local governments were enabling corporations to just generate massive amounts of waste. And they were enabling that by paying for solid waste and recycling services and not having those systems be paid for by corporations. And it was based on this analysis of looking backwards, like how did these modern solid waste and recycling systems get set up in the first place? And what was so interesting is when they looked at, at the research, what they found is that most of the, of the modern sanitation systems were built back in the late 1800s or early 1900s 
And they were literally created because of a public health emergency. You had the streets of cities were filled with horse manure and people were dumping their chamber pots out, out the window, literally throwing their garbage out the window as well. And it was creating a situation where there was a lot of disease and a lot of significant public health problems. And in many of these cities, it was the women of the cities that banded together and convinced the, the predominantly male politicians to create these uh, sanitation services. That wow. The first, first, yeah, first job. I've never was, heard this story. It's so, yeah. it's so cool. I mean, you've already got me thinking about how that's such a parallel to our current situation um, with where we've got plastic in the streets. But that's right. Before it was... I don't want to use this word on the air, but <laughs> waste in the streets. Horse poop, horse poop. <laughs> horse poop and human poop. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 And, and, you know, what's really interesting about it is that you look back at these pictures of these sanitation officials and these were, these were government jobs and they, you know, there were unions that were set up to, to represent these folks and, and they helped create this, the infrastructure that again was predominantly dealing with um, back in the early 1900s is predominantly dealing with, you know, making sure that the waste was not on the streets and also, you know, setting up the systems to, to get the, the garbage and the refuse outside and also to manage the recyclable scrap materials. And of course, back then, everything was made out of natural material. So it was like paper or cloth or wood or metal, things that could be relatively easily dealt with, things that were non-toxic um, predominantly. And so you flash forward to the post-World War II era and the consumer product revolution and these systems that were set up to basically protect against disease were now being asked to be a cog in the global economy and to essentially start cleaning up all the packaging and all of the consumer product waste that really wasn't there when these systems were created. And so you had this you know, major revolution in, in, in this new consumer product economy, but it was being pushed, the, the, the ramifications of that were being pushed downstream to city governments to try to figure out what to do with all this stuff when consumers were done with it. Mm -hmm. Wow. I'm I'm sitting here thinking we should do a podcast on this. This is an interesting story. <laughs> it would be really it would be really fun to, to actually bring uh, Bill and Helen, the founders of Upstream, on on the show to, to talk about the analysis that they did and then you know what they were doing back then. But you know, so the so the big idea was like okay. Now that we know that this that this is the problem that you have you know corporations that are getting a, a free ride on these local government systems that are funded by taxpayers and they're not having to design for you know the end of the pipe they're basically just getting to design products and packaging however they want and just put them into the marketplace and let the city governments and the taxpayers worry about what to do with them that we we knew that we had to connect the connect the front end to the back end and that public policy was one really effective tool for how to do that and and this concept of bringing extended producer responsibility here was the was the big idea so those making the stuff should have some role in dealing with the stuff after people are done using it that's right. Yeah. And and not even just not not just some role, but that they're literally designing with the end in mind. They're thinking mm -hmm. about how do I design a product? How do I design a package and the material how do I choose the materials in it to be continually reused, continually recycled so that we are we're no longer like relying on getting virgin materials from the natural world to power our consumer product economy. Yeah. Yeah. And one of one of yeah. the things people don't think about all the time is that businesses are so responsive to constraints. You know, right. if, if That's you right. create a constraint, they get creative and design for that constraint. But if there's no constraint, then they'll go with the cheapest, easiest option, which is usually not good for the planet, right? Yeah, 100%. Yep. Yeah, and so the the organizing strategy was really to to work with local and city governments at at the that so part of what Upstream did, you know, Bill Sheehan, one of the founders, referred to <laughs> we refer to him as Johnny Appleseed. That's one of the the analogies we like to use. But he literally went around the country, you know, met with city governments and local governments and worked with them to to self-organize into these state-based and regional-based product stewardship councils. And over the course of, of 10 years, he helped to, to found about 15 of them around the country. Um, it was based on this model 
of product steward a product stewardship council that started in the northwest called the northwest product stewardship council and the whole idea was let's get city governments on the same page with moving extended producer responsibility policy forward and let's look at which types of products are the ones that are most ripe to start moving into these types of, of systems where corporations are going to be you know financially and legally responsible for setting up the collection and recycling systems for their stuff and so Interestingly enough, I was a I was a young organizer back when Upstream started uh, back in 2003, and I brought the founder uh, Bill Sheehan to the state of Maine, um, where I was living and working, to testify on the country's first in the nation extended producer responsibility law for electronic waste. So this was a law that we eventually passed here in Maine, became the first law of its kind that required TV and computer manufacturers to pay for the collection and recycling of their products. And I worked um, in my previous organization very closely with Upstream um, during that time. We worked on a number of pieces of legislation that ended up being national firsts and that helped pave the way for a whole bunch of other states to follow. And so over the course of about 10 years, we were able to, as a, as a movement, to pass over 100 laws in 34 different states covering a whole wide range of products, everything from computers and television sets to cell phones to mercury-containing products like thermostats to carpet to paint, um, you name it. And so it was a really exciting time for me as a young organizer to, you know, to be getting my, my feet wet and working on these issues and then working with you know, the thought leaders at Upstream that were dreaming up the policies and then working to, to help organize around getting them passed. Well, thank you. I mean, <laughs> reminds me of when we had Mark, Mike Schott on the show um, with the Mind the Store campaign and, yeah. you know, the the hard work behind the scenes to make those policies that people don't think about, but that help manage these issues of waste and chemicals and toxins and make our lives safer and um, more sane, I think you could say as well. So appreciate you all doing that work in the early days. Yeah, well, it was a lot of fun, and you know, working working with Mike was the other part of my my old job as well oh, really? on the environment on the environmental health side. So that's that's really where my my roots are. It's really around you know product policy and EPR policy, and then environmental health policy. And um, but um, so I actually joined the organization in 2011, and it was this really interesting moment because. Nestle Waters North America, right? This the the biggest bottled water company uh, mm-hmm. in in the country, had come out and and said that they were going to support extended producer responsibility for packaging, and and what was so interesting about this is that you know there had been all this pressure on the beverage industry from shareholders and from organizations for them to do something about the fact that so much of the of the bottles and the cans don't get collected for recycling and so many of them wind up in the environment and so you you actually had a company come out and say we're going to support a policy idea to do something about it instead of just saying no and we saw it as both an opportunity and a threat and so we got involved and some of the very first things that I did when I joined the organization was I helped to organize stakeholder dialogue so we did a stakeholder dialogue with the solid waste and recycling industry we did a stakeholder dialogue with city governments we helped to co-facilitate a stakeholder dialogue with consumer brands and retailers and we pulled together a piece of legislation we introduced it in about a half dozen states and to make a long story short we failed and i think there were a couple of big reasons for why we failed the first is that a lot of the legislators felt that it was a little bit like we were a solution in search of a problem <laughs> a lot of the legislators mm-hmm. were like hey i have a blue i have a blue bin i have a blue cart why should i care who pays for recycling mm-hmm. and you know this idea that recycling is solved like it's done And the other thing is that back in those days, like China was still taking all of our low value recyclables, um, Mm -hmm. which they aren't doing today. And of course, the big thing, and I think this is the difference between then and now, is that we were just, we were missing our poster child. And so, you know, this is right around 2014, 2015, we started working um, with a number of, of groups 
that had were the ones that had gone out and started to document this emerging environmental issue that we all now know of as plastic pollution. And these were, you know, our friends at, at the Five Gyres Institute and Algalita and the Plastic Pollution Coalition, folks that literally had kind of gone out into the, the oceans, documented the problem for all the world to see, and, and then put these images and these statistics and things on social media. I often refer to plastic pollution as really the first social media uh, environmental issue. And one of the things that we noticed was that these groups with very small budgets had done this incredible job raising awareness around the problem. I mean, there was so much work that was done over the course of a couple of years to engage people around this problem that was really only formally understood by scientists. But the scale of the solutions work um, was really nowhere near the scale of the problem. And, you know, we looked at our background with having these networks of working with, you know, city government officials and NGOs around solid waste and recycling policy and EPR policy. We looked at the, the other networks of folks working on environmental health and climate that we were also connected with. And we said, what if we could bring people together and start strategizing for how we could work together, raise money together, scale this movement together, come together around the same ideas and strategies. And of course, um, unbeknownst to us, there was a similar process that was happening in Europe. There was a similar process happening in Southeast Asia. Um, there were funders and there were some high-level folks, including Greenpeace International and our, our friends at Gaia, that um, you know were pulling together a global conversation. And so we worked to get that conversation going here in the United States. And then we spent a, a good chunk of the next three years um, really working as con almost like consultants to help build what is now called the, the Global Break Free from Plastic Movement. We were helping to organize and coordinate um, a lot of the groups here in the United States, which is when you and I started working together, mm -hmm. which is so, so this fun. This is the part of the story that I know, yeah. <laughs> this is the part of the story that you know, which is really fun when we started working together on this. And for those folks that don't know, Brooking was our, our network facilitator here um, when we were getting this project going. And then the other projects that we were working on during this time, about from 2015 to 2018, is we had a project with the Urban Sustainability Directors Network, this incredible network of city government officials all around the country. Um, and what we were trying to do is, is show that, that plastics is not just a, you don't just pass a plastic bag ban and you're done, that there's really like a long-term strategic um, play here for cities and that there's all kinds of things that cities can do beyond just banning plastic bags or banning styrofoam, that there's purchasing that cities can do, that there's all kinds of policies that cities can do. There's, there's infrastructure that cities can build to help solve all these these challenges. Um, and so that was a really fun project. And then we did another project, you know, working with the United Nations Environment Program on the strategies that they were pulling together around uh, plastic pollution at that time. And, you know, all three of these projects hit inflection points um, in the, the, the spring of, of 2019. And we started thinking about like, what does the world need from upstream now? And we, we held a strategic planning retreat and we started looking at, at these trends that we were seeing out there in the marketplace. You know, one was China mm -hmm. um, and the fact that China no longer taking our, our low value recyclables was just completely upending the economics of recycling for the United States and Europe. And and you had city governments here in the United States that used to get paid for their recyclables that were now paying much more than it would cost to landfill or incinerate them to get them recycled. And, and that there's a lot of consternation around the economics. You know, some cities were committed to their recycling no matter how much they would cost. But for other cities, when the economics stopped working, those cities started shuttering their, their recycling programs. The other trend that we saw is that, you know, as I mentioned before, like our movement had done this incredible job engaging people around the problem, but we felt that there just wasn't enough vision painting for what this, what the world could look like without all this single use garbage, mm -hmm. <laughs> that that was just a, a big part that was missing. Like, how do we actually show that there's this beautiful world emerging without plastic pollution yeah. and that you're going to want to be a part of it? Um, and then the third trend that we saw is, you know, there were all these commercial interests that were out there saying, hey, don't use single use plastic, use my single use product. It's made out of paper or it's made out of aluminum or it's made out of mushrooms. And when we took a look at the science behind those products, 
you know, we very quickly realized that, you know, when you're trading one single use product for another, you're just out of the frying pan into the fire. You're, you may, you may have not have plastic in the ocean with your product, but now you have greater climate emissions. You've got more toxic chemicals that you're using. You've got more water use. Um, you're mowing down forests, right? And so, when we started to look at the data of what's actually in the environment, <laughs> we realized that roughly two thirds of it, 67% of litter is food and beverage packaging. And my friend, uh, Marcus Erickson from the Five Jars Institute, and I co-authored a report a number of years back called the, the Better Alternatives Now Report, where we were compiling a number of data sets for the types of high pollution plastic products that we find in the environment. And one of the things we were trying to do was to come up with a solutions framework. Like, is there some, is there some kind of framework that we can look at this list and apply it for how we intervene uh, around all these products? And I think that for me, it just kind of crystallized in, into three, <laughs> three big ideas. And the first one is, is, is Marcus's phrase, which I always love. He said, you know, Matt, we just got to stop the stupid stuff. <laughs> so on, on one side of this list are there's all these low value plastic applications that have these readily available substitutes that can just go away today, right? These are things like plastic bags and styrofoam and straws. We just ban that stuff, get rid of it, put fees on it to discourage its use, et cetera. On the other side of that list are high value products where plastic is is doing a, a pretty playing a pretty valuable role. And I think about this every time when I um, go into the convenience store. I'm hungry. I want a, a, a Cliff Bar or I want to get some almonds. And and for those types of applications, the vendors require a 12 to 18 month shelf life. And in that situation, we really need design change. Kind of the holy grail is a packaging material that if that, if that were to get in the environment, it could become soil nutrients um, in a matter of weeks to months. But sometimes it's, it's not just about designing a better package. Sometimes it's about designing a better system. So, you know, I live in, in Maine. We're a bottle bill state. Something like 96% of the plastic soda and water and juice bottles that are sold into Maine get collected for recycling through our deposit system. So sometimes it's just about building a better system. But in the middle of this list, and this is really where we're focused on as an organization, are all of these products that are just symptoms of our one-way, throw-away, disposable uh, culture that are really just ripe for disruption. They are ready to go away. And I think about this, you know, all the, the unnecessary cough, throw-away coffee cups and to-go containers and all of the, the way that we deliver products and services in ways that are just reliant on this one-way, throw-away model. You know, we recognize that, you know, we have to figure out how we get people what they want and need without, without generating any waste in the first yeah. place. The solution can not be just to move from one single-use product to another. Yeah. Well, there's a couple things I just want to reflect on that part that, I mean, because as you know, I, I do work with other movements. And one of the things that I think is such an important recognition that Upstream has played a huge role in the in the plastic pollution movement is recognizing, and there's data that supports this. There's a group called Frameworks Institute that studies like how we receive different kinds of messaging. And one of their big takeaways is that crisis messaging is not effective. It leads right, to crisis fatigue. Right. And I yes. feel like crisis messaging is just so easy in the environmental yeah. movement these days. So, you know, the, the upstream's commitment to finding and holding that positive vision that people can get excited about, or as Brian and Tommy of the Dancing Foxes uh, said in, in our episode with them, that, you know, you want to have the cooler party that you invite people to rather than just standing out front telling everybody how bad things are, right? And I right. think that's one of the things that Upstream has been doing a really great job of helping lead and steer the movement toward that visionary thinking. And and as you are starting to get into looking at how can we build new systems and new ways of working so that it's still, we can have good lives. It's not like this huge sacrifice, but that um, we're redesigning the business systems and, and the way that goods move in our economy that can be win-win for all involved. Yeah, I'm, I'm glad you brought this up, Brooking, because, you know, and I, and I appreciate the kind words. I, I think that, that you know, I was trained in kind of traditional uh, PR with this concept of villain, victim, vindicator. And, you know, you introduced me to the concept of, oh, that's the drama triangle. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and, you know, this idea that there are, 
you know, there are villains out there and there are victims and, and then there are saviors, there are vindicators that come in. And a lot of the way that environmental groups and, you know, groups that I've worked for and even campaigns that I've run have been, these are the villains. They're the polluters. They're creating all these problems and you all are the victims. We're the savior environmental group, you know, write us a check. Right. Yeah. Um, and I think that when I really understood the inverse of that, um, which is a much more like human way of looking at it, where it's not to say that there aren't people doing really bad things out there or corporations that aren't doing really bad things out there. And they're absolutely, we need to hold people accountable for crimes and for the impact um, on today's generations and tomorrow's generations. Mm -hmm. And at the same time, like the, the way that we're going to get there more quickly is by holding on to our humanity, in my opinion. And, you know, inverting the drama triangle to this idea that the villain is actually really the challenger in the story, the challenger that is forcing an awakening to happen and that the victim becomes the creator and the victim has agency. And instead of the victim needing a savior, the creator now has a coach. And I think that this is the the role that we at Upstream really realized when we we, we actually went into and we did a story hacking yeah. retreat with our friends at the Dancing Foxes. Hi, Tommy and Brian, if you're listening. Uh, love those guys. Is we recognize that in the story, like we're not the heroes, actually. The heroes are the kid that wants to change his school cafeteria, right? He wants to get the, all the single use trays and styrofoam out of the school cafeteria, right? It's the entrepreneur that says, I'm tired of all this, these single use coffee cups. I think I can build a company around creating a reuse system for this city, right? Mm -hmm. um, it's the it's the teacher that's bringing plastic pollution into the science curriculum, right? It's it's the policymaker that, that's going out on a limb and, and advocating for policies that they know could be unpopular. It's those ladies in the late 1900s that uh, helped the cities get rid That's of the right. horse poop. <laughs> That's right. That's right. You know, Next those generation are, version of that. Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. And and those are our heroes. And and our job is to empower them to succeed. You know, support them to succeed. It's like how can we create the materials, the policies, the you know, how can we uplift them through this podcast? You know, like how can we create the resources on the website? How can we create the networks? Like, what can we do to empower and support our heroes to have success? Mm -hmm. And I think that was, you know, for me, that that was such a, a helpful way of thinking about the kind of organization that I wanted to help grow and build and, and put out there into the world. Yeah. So on that note, I think that's a good place to start talking about what Upstream has been doing the last few years in terms of putting together so many incredible resources for people who are interested in working on this and in finding out about what's happening. And yeah. just in the last six months or so, I think you guys have launched a new website with this incredible resource hub that not everybody knows about yet. So tell us a little bit about that and how you use the the sort of silver lining of, of the pandemic to focus on some of these digital projects. Yeah, yeah, I, I'd be excited to talk about that, and I think you know I, I'd like to maybe back into that question by by kind of talking about the vision that we're working towards right now because I I know a lot of folks that listen to the podcast know about Upstream, but I, I think it's you know when I when I really sit down with the vision, it really comes down to this concept right here that we know that we cannot create a good quality of life for seven and a half billion people and growing on this one way throwaway disposable model. And right now, you know, we live in a, in a world that has an economic system or systems that treat people and the planet and our communities like they're disposable. And we fundamentally know that they are indisposable. <laughs> and so that's what we're working for. We're working for a world where people, the planet um, are treated as indisposable and where businesses and communities can thrive on reusability so that we can get people what they want and they need without generating any waste. Um, and mm -hmm. just to think about like what this looks like, I mean, you know, imagine that you're, you're in your favorite city square, <laughs> you know, like everybody's vaccinated, everybody's going back, the party's happening out on the square, people are throwing a Frisbee around and you're, you're looking around and you recognize that all of the restaurants, there's, it doesn't matter if it's the cool new fast casual place or McDonald's, there's no more throwaway stuff. The disposable uh, plates and cups and cutlery, all that stuff is gone and been placed by real and reusable stuff. And that the garbage cans aren't overflowing with throwaway coffee cups because there is a reusable coffee cup service that's providing 
all the cafes in the area with reusable cups so that if you walk into a cafe, you forgot your reusable mug, you can rent one for a dollar. And if you're at a different cafe in a different part of the city later on that day, you hand them the dirty one, they give you your next coffee to go and a clean one because they're all using the same system. Same thing with getting food, uh, takeout food or food delivered to your home or office. There's, there's companies that are providing these reuse services to restaurants and institutions so that you can get food delivered to your home or office building in reusable containers and reusable bags. And that that's easily collected, easily cleaned, sanitized and put right back into service. And kind of the holy grail is also like consumer product delivery, right? When we disrupt and we change the way that products are delivered to our homes. I just had Ashley Etling from Lime Loop um, mm-hmm. on, on the show here. And they have developed not just a, a reusable package for online ordering where I get my clothes from Toad and Company. And I, you know, I just, there's a prepaid mailing label that I stick back on the package and I stick that package right back into uh, my mailbox, and it just goes right back to the company where it gets sanitized and then you know sent out with clothing for the next person that orders. Um, but they are developing a logistics company around this whole idea. It's not just about the reusable package. It's like, how do we actually squeeze out unnecessary packaging along the entire supply chain? And so anyway, this, this vision is, it's not just like pie in the sky. It's actually happening right now. And I think that what's so exciting about, about last year in 2020 is that I say 2020 is the year that corporate America got religion on on reuse and refill. Um, We Mm -hmm. saw some of the the biggest fast food companies in the world, McDonald's and Burger King and Tim Hortons, piloting reusable packaging. We saw some of the biggest food companies and personal care products companies like Unilever, Nestle. They're now working with a company called El Gramo to pilot selling personal care products and laundry detergent and dish detergent, things like that in reusable systems that are both set up at brick and mortar retail and also going out into communities. So one of the things that the folks at El Gramo realized is that for a lot of people in the global South, uh, poor people in the global South, they can't afford to buy the larger sizes of products, household products that everybody else is able to afford. So they buy these very small amounts. They're often packaged in these little single serve sachet packets, um, plastic packets that are kind of littering the ground all over the place in the global South. And that this company is coming in you know, working with the same companies, right? The Unilevers and the Procter's and Gambles of the world that that are currently have their products packaged in sachets and coming up with a reusable way to deliver that same product to people in ways that don't generate any waste or any pollution. Yeah. Um, you know, I'm glad you slowed really down to do the vision part because I forget sometimes, you know, hosting this show, I hear that right. vision all the time. But, yeah. you know, for any listener for whom this is your first episode, yeah, it's it's always great to lay it out because it's, it's it's both here and it's not yet the norm and people That's are right. still learning. And really, as you said, so much has happened just in the last year, somewhat surprisingly and amazingly through the pandemic, there's this infrastructure being built so that you know, bringing back the milkman can happen, right? We have that right. episode for those who want to learn more about Loop. We've actually had them on here twice. Um, yeah. Tom Zaki from Loop to talk about all the amazing work they're doing and the other episodes you just mentioned. So, you know, you and I hosting this show, we get a lot of positivity and boost and we see the future happening. And and that's the whole point of this podcast, right? Is so that everybody who cares about this can can tune in and hear about the good work that's already happening to build the future we want. Yeah, and I think you know some of our listeners might might be curious about how upstream has an impact in the space, and and I think you know we have really three core strategies, uh, three core projects that we that we do to to have an influence. The first is our business innovation project, where we literally work with businesses to help them transition their operations from single use to reuse. We work to document. The impact, not just the environmental impact for businesses of making these changes, but the cost savings impact. One of the things that our team has been able to prove is that by moving from single use to reuse in food service operations, that for on-site, 100% of the time, businesses save money. (laughs) Not 
80% or 90% or 95%, but 100% of the time, usually within a very short time period for a, pay, a short payback period on your ROI, that food service businesses can save money. So this is like a great story that we can tell, right? And the other thing that we're working on in the business project is how do we ideate and accelerate these reuse services um, and the infrastructure that's needed around takeout and delivery, right? So the, the story I like to tell is the, the founders of Upstream you know, who are now in their 60s and 70s when they were in college, they talked about literally they talked about literally going dorm room, uh, dorm to dorm to collect enough newsprint so that they could put it into a garage and find a buyer for it because there really wasn't much recycling infrastructure back then. Mm -hmm. And now today, more people recycle than vote. <laughs> but in the future, we're going to have the reuse bin. And I think our goal is to figure out, you know, what do we need to do to get the reuse bin in our homes and offices? And then how do we pull more and more packaging <laughs> out of the recycling bin and out of the garbage bin and into that reuse bin? You know, we're at the early stages of this reuse infrastructure in cities. It's just starting to come online. And of course, just like with recycling, it required massive amounts of public and private investment. And we see the same need here. But the good news is, is that when cities make these investments into this infrastructure, that those cities will start saving money because they're no longer going to have to deal with those products in their solid waste streams. They're not going to have to deal with those products in the litter cleanup services that they have to do right now, right? So, yeah. you know, one of the things that we're working on this year is can we quantify the cost savings, not just for businesses, we've already done that, but can we quantify the cost savings for city governments if they start to invest in building out this new reuse service infrastructure? Yeah. You know, just yesterday, um, speaking of what Upstream's up to, one of the things that that I work with you all on is hosting um, the forums, the national forums for reuse, the nonprofit one and the government forum. And we had a guest yesterday from Gaia talking about their new jobs report. Speaking of what one of the things that I feel most excited about is there's more research coming out that shows that yeah. hundreds more jobs come out of uh, reuse economy than the waste economy. And it, the, that there's, not just an environmental case, not just a human health case. There's also an economic case. It's also going to create way more jobs. And as the recycling industry is falling, as you've mentioned, there's this new opportunity in the economic recovery phase that we're all facing now with COVID to integrate yeah. reuse. And I, there, we're having these conversations, which is so exciting. And maybe we can have a podcast about it. You know, the, the government leaders are thinking, how can we integrate this into our zero waste plans and other plans? How do we make the business case to the city councils, to the chambers of commerce? And it's a good case, you know, as you're saying. So I think we might yeah, start to know, see a real turning of the tide. It's, you know, it's a, a good, a good segue into one of the other parts of Upstream's work, which is really around the policy work. You know, how do we create the, the, the policy conditions for these, for this new reuse service infrastructure to take root and thrive? And we're primarily focused on city policy and the, a great example around the job creation piece is that oftentimes you'll have a, a city that wants to ban styrofoam takeout containers, for example. And of course this, the styrofoam container industry will come in and say, oh, you can't do that. You're going to cost jobs. Well, in that industry, you have one company, Dark Container Corporation, that owns you know, the vast majority of the market mm -hmm. for styrofoam containers. They have squeezed every single human being out of that supply chain. And again, if, if there are jobs that are going to be gone, it's going to be far outside, in, in most cases, outside of the community where that policy is being debated. But what could take its place is this new reuse service economy where you have entrepreneurial businesses that are coming into the community or being started in the community that are creating services whereby they're putting reusable containers out to all the restaurants they're then going and collecting them, taking them back to a dishwashing hub, you know, washing them, sanitizing them, and then putting them right back out into commerce. And so, you know, you're literally creating jobs right there in your community when you start to build this reuse infrastructure. And so, again, we feel that there's a great story to tell policymakers that, hey, we don't just want to ban the bad stuff. We want to create the conditions for the good stuff to come in and replace it. And like I was saying before, some of that's going to take, you know, public 
public investment, private investment, seed funding to get these um, companies established. But once they're there, it becomes the new normal. And the cities that have done this, like Europe is, of course, ahead of us on a lot of this stuff. The cities that have done this, like it's just become the new, the normal. Like you see people walking in the streets with all of these reusable coffee cups, for example, that they that they they didn't bring with them. They just got it when they went to the cafe because that's the norm now for for that city. Um, and so the last thing that you know that we work on, and another segue over to that, is around social impact campaigns. And you know we look at this as kind of two different things. The first is, um, and I mentioned this earlier in the podcast, that we know that it's hard for people to envision what what this world without single use stuff and single use waste can look like. And so we want to show that it's here, it's happening right now. And so one of the primary purposes of this podcast is to shine the light on the entrepreneurs, the activists, the policymakers that are literally creating that beautiful future right now. <laughs> Not sometime in the, in the future, but they're they're doing it right here. It's right it's right here and right now and inspiring others to either you know work with them or create it themselves in their own community that's a big part of what we're trying to do is show that the future is here now and you're going to want to get involved the other thing we want to do is to poke fun at single use stuff right you know the 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 straws campaign that our our incredible friends at the lonely whale foundation plastic pollution coalition last plastic straw really the break free from plastic movement was involved but those organizations were really helping to lead it just opened my eyes to the to the idea that we can actually run environmental campaigns like advertising campaigns and that we can very quickly shift and change norms around what's acceptable and what's not and that there are so many other single use products that are ripe for disruption right the throwaway coffee cup um the to go container i mean bottled water all these things are just they're literally ripe for disruption um, all the, the plastic cutlery that gets put into your delivery meals that are coming right to your house. Cause we're all sitting inside, um, you know, working from home now. Right. Uh, I mean, that's like, those kinds of things are just ripe for disruption. And so we're working to launch more campaigns that are targeting those single use products, um, and working to replace them with the, the new reuse economy. Yeah. And coming back to that idea that we talked about in our last one-on-one -on -one episode of making, single use gross and not yeah. cool and, yeah. and sort of taking one from the cigarette uh campaigning journey where you know as ashtrays used to be a thing that kids made for their parents as you told this story in our last episode together and now all of us hear that and say, ooh, <laughs> you know. Right, right, um, right. So that's another exciting trend we're working on. You know, one of the things that has also really excited me about just the moment that we're in is that, you know, we mentioned earlier how corporate America is finally getting religion on, on reuse. And, you know, I think there's a, a couple of, of reasons around that. The first is just the incredible work that our movement, the Break Free from Plastic movement has been able to do around what we like to call the, the brands on the beach, right? So mm -hmm. up until Break Free from Plastic was created, there were lots of organizations that were going out there, the International Coastal Cleanup, the Ocean Conservancy, collecting data on the types of plastic products that were, that were being found in the environment. But there wasn't any work to identify who's who, who owned them, <laughs> whose names were on them, right? And so that was a, just an incredible idea um, that came out of the break free from plastic movement. And since then, you know, we've been able to just shine the light that, Hey, Coca-Cola, you're the biggest polluter in the world. <laughs> you know, Nestle, you're number two, you know, uh, uh, Unilever, you're, you know, it's, so it's like shining that spotlight on major brands, having them realize that this is a major brand liability to have their branded products in the environment. And then, you know, pushing them to do something about it. I think the other thing that's happened. And this is why we're seeing all this attention on reuse is that this myth that recycling is going to save us is just completely broken down. Mm -hmm. And I think that there's been so many great exposés by amazing journalists and so much great work done by our partners to, to break that myth down. You know, again, sadly for a lot of our listeners, you know, there's, there's virtually no data that shows that recycling has had a measurable impact on reducing stress on the natural world. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it's so it's part of the solutions mix. We want to recycle, but it is not enough to put that bottle or that plastic container into the blue bin or the blue cart. We have to do better. Yeah. Um, 
And I think, you know, the, the the third thing, and this is the one that actually excites me the most, because I think this is the thing that's really going to drive the change, is that corporations are actually recognizing that if they can deliver their products in reuse systems and with reuse services, that it is going to be able to not be a brand risk. It's going to be a brand attribute that customers are going to have more brand loyalty because <laughs> they like this system better. And they're going to say, hey, I used to use that cleaning system, that, that cleaning product, but I like this one because it's in a reusable, like I only, I only have to get the, the tablet and I just refilled the same container all the time. Like this is better. And these products work just as well, if not better. And so that attribute, that seeing reuse as a brand attribute that's going to enable them to get brand loyalty is a huge driver. And then the other thing that they're recognizing is that they can actually save money across their supply chains by, by delivering their products these ways. For a lot of products, packaging is a major expense. Mm -hmm. You know, sometimes it can be 30, 40, 50, 60, 70% of the price of the product is actually the package itself. Wow. So if they can get rid of the package and, and still, you know, charge good money for delivering the product, which is what people want, they don't want the package, they want the product. There's a, a profit to be gained there. And so, you know, I think this is something as well. A lot of these entrepreneurs, the Tom Zackies of the world, uh, thank you, Tom, <laughs> um, Jose Manuel from Algramo, you know, they're literally showing these brands that, hey, you guys can do it this way and you're going to be more profitable if you do it this way. And that's super exciting. Yeah. You know, I, I don't know why I seem to be stuck on the website thing. I think it's because I know I, I, for some of our listeners, especially those who do work in policy and organizing or, um, or trying to make something happen in businesses, one of the things that's just so useful is to be able to have a fact sheet, to be able to have a link yes, with right. data that they can go show their investors or their city council or um, you know, be able to send someone an email with a link kind of thing. So tell us a little bit about what's on the website. Yeah. You know, one of the things that we really wanted to do is close the education gap um, because you and I know about all this stuff now, but I think most people, when they think about the solutions to plastic pollution, their first thought is recycling and their second thought is bioplastics or compostable packaging. Yep. And we recognize that these were like major obstacles that, you know, you really have to convince people almost up front and show them why those aren't the solutions. And then you really have to sell them on this idea of this beautiful new reusable future, right? And it's a bit of a hard sell when, when you're only approaching it with the information that you've been presented with thus far. And we said, we got to have, you know, really concise, easy to understand information that's backed up by science, where we've got the fact sheets, we've got the reports and everything from entrepreneurs to policymakers to kids that are, are, are working to change their school districts or write reports or whatever else that they've got the information right there. So we have this really exciting new learning hub where you can browse topics like why single-use compostables and bioplastics aren't the answer, why we can't recycle our way out of the problem, how single-use stuff is making us sick, and then really looking at the data, like how do reuse and single-use products compare on environmental impacts? How do reuse and single-use products compare around the economics for business? How do they compare around safety? Um, you know, what, what are the challenges to building this new reuse economy? And then of course, what are the, what are the benefits and what are the, what are the opportunities? What are the policies that, that we need to help drive and move this stuff forward? So we've really worked to curate all of this for our community. And in addition to developing a lot of resources for businesses and for, for policymakers and NGOs that are working on, on policies or business transformation, we're also starting to generate a lot more content for everyday folks. We really want to empower people to change their homes, you know, change their office buildings, change their schools, and really work in their communities to transform the way things are done. And I think that that you know, for us, the the big thing that we came out of our strategic planning retreat this year was, hey, you know, we've we've helped, we've played a, an important role in helping to build a mass movement um, in the United States and around the world on plastic pollution. 
And now what we're really working to do is to take the, the part of that movement that's really focused on, on reuse, speed, single use every time, and how do we support and scale the, the growing of a mass movement around this idea that reuse beats single use every time, mm-hmm. you know, how do we close that education gap? How do we, um, create and leverage high level partnerships with other organizations and companies, educational institutions, uh, to do that. And so we know we have this incredible community. We, we love you guys. Thank you so much for listening to the podcast and showing up on our live streams and in the National Reuse Network and Government Reuse Forum and soon to be launched Reuse Business Forum. Stay tuned. But, um, you know, we also recognize that there's just so much that needs to be done to engage the rest of the country around these big ideas and really start to get folks excited about building it so that when we look, you know, 5, 10, 15, 20 years ago from now, just like looking backwards, there was no recycling 30 years ago, you know, looking forward, like we want reuse to, um, you know, have replaced recycling as the dominant way that we interact with um, the way we get our stuff. Yeah. Well, Matt, one of the things I often ask guests towards the end, I mean, in in this case, you know, you said earlier in the show, we're not the heroes you guys are, but you upstream is doing a lot of good work. So I, you know, (laughs) in the host role, I can say you guys count as solutioneers or heroes of the work as well. In particular, in the role of uplifting others is is its own role, right? Um, Right. That's right. But I am curious to ask, so what for the listeners who have been juiced by this conversation, what can they do to help the work that you guys are doing? Well, we would love for you folks to go to upstreamsolutions.org. I I mentioned the learning hub where you can get all kinds of resources. You can find out everything you'd ever want to know about the new reuse economy uh, and how to uh, create it in your home and in your community. Uh, You can also get involved in our campaigns. We have a a recently launched Skip the Stuff campaign that we're working on with a number of our partners in the Break Free from Plastic movement. The whole idea behind that campaign is to get restaurants to ask first (laughs) before they put in all the the plastics cutlery and the ketchup packets and the napkins and all the stuff you don't want or need because it's getting delivered to your home or office place in the first place where you already have all that stuff. Um, So so please get involved in our campaigns. We'd love for you to sign up for our newsletter. Um, You can do that right off the homepage. Uh, follow us on social media and just stay tuned because we're always working on on new content and on new ways for you to get involved in becoming uh, a solutioneer uh, on plastics and reuse in your own community. So stay tuned for all that. And we look forward to hearing from you folks. Awesome. Well, thanks for joining us on the guest side of things today, Matt. I actually learned quite a bit, especially about the deeper history of of the work. So uh, it was great to get that perspective from you and always great to hear your vision and remind us all of how close we are to this different reality that's a lot better for all of us where the future is indisposable. Brooking, it's always so fun uh, to be on the show with you and uh, just really appreciate everything that that you do for Upstream and love listening to the podcast episodes that um, you've recorded with all our amazing guests. So thank you so much. And that's our show. If you like what you're hearing, help spread the word. Subscribe to the Indisposable Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Add a review, talk us up. Nobody spreads a message like you. The Indisposable Podcast is brought to you by Upstream, sparking innovative solutions to plastic pollution, envisioning a world without it, and empowering businesses, communities, and individuals to imagine and co-create this future with us. You can find resources mentioned on today's episode as well as learn more about Upstream's work at www.upstreamsolutions.org. Follow us on social and join the movement. There's a better way than throwaway.